0: Being here for bringing God's word and now also being willing to, to answer all these questions. And, and, and if there are some still being written, Taylor Van Grauw is there ready to, to receive it. And then also um, in between, if there's anyone who has a question, please raise your hand and get my attention. Somehow we can have some also verbally. Thank you so much, Taylor getting bigger <laughs> alright first question why does the apostles creed say he descended into hell when Jesus said to the thief on the cross today you will be with me in paradise Luke twenty-three
1: forty-three. <laughs> so I'm getting the softball this is, this is good. This is the first time I've been on a question and answer panel.
0: <laughs> well, the, the, the rule, I guess, is if you have courage, you can go ahead and answer.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, one of the, the questions that we have to ask ourselves is, uh, what is hell? Um, and uh, thankfully, I have the benefit of uh, having studied that and, and preached on that recently, And our confession, what our confession, our our creed is trying to capture is the experience of Christ as he suffered upon the cross. Uh, For what he suffered was, uh, in one sense, the forsakenness of God, of his Father, with whom he had enjoyed unbroken communion um, eternally and then uh, through his earthly life, Um, but also then in that same time experiencing the wrath of God against the sin of uh, his people being poured out uh, without measure upon him. And so uh, it would be inappropriate to say that he actually descended into hell uh, as a physical place, but he experienced all of the horror of hell as he suffered on the cross uh, for his people.
0: anything to that that, yeah
1: sure it's not
2: chronology that's the point in the apostles creed it's theology it's a summation of christ's experience on the cross and that's that's the state of humiliation
0: okay if you believe in election doesn't that leave you with the problem of why god doesn't choose to save everyone so why God doesn't choose to save everyone why
3: why should he save
0: anyone why should Should
3: he I mean as we have uh, learned over the last couple days that it is the the whole human race is fallen and out of the what is then called theology, the mass of perdition in his good pleasure, in his mercy, he saved to salvation. So it is just if you uh, formulate the question, you know, why did God this or that? That's very anthropocentric, it's a really an, an, a humanistic question. But biblically, a, a biblical answer would be. This, this is great, great mercy that He saved out of the fallen race to salvation. It is because our own own sin and guilt that we've fallen in. He He created us perfect and good, uh, but we have fallen so deep. And in His good pleasure, as the canons of Dort explain, in His good pleasure, He saved to salvation. Mm-hmm.
0: There's a follow-up because you feel like you need more explanation. Feel free to, again, call get my attention. <laughs> okay, does man have any form of free will? Or is our every thought and action directed by God?
2: It's like lambs to the slaughter here, uh, so I'll take a stab at this. Uh... No, we we're always choosing. You're, you're always choosing. You choose according to your nature. So the problem is not the choice. I think what we desire as red-blooded Americans is libertarian choice, right? We want to be able to fly, even though we're not birds. We want to be able to be women, even though we're men. You know, it's it's we're very confused. We're we're uh, are, we're very twisted. But we we're choosing all the time. But we're never choosing against our nature so you know we're choosing to eat Italian instead of Chinese food we're choosing to make a right turn instead of a left turn at the curb um, but so there's there's human agency that's real that's that's intact you know that it, it, it's what we choose um, but our choices are derived from our nature so the problem is not you know, um, one particular choice or another. It's the nature that we have that needs to be renewed. All right, it's a corrupted human nature. It's not the nature of a bird or, you know, um, something else, inanimate nature. It's human nature, but it's been uh, radically corrupted. So, um, you know, I think it was C.S. Lewis, always a tricky name to quote, in a reformed conference, you know, not a reformed man himself, but I think he, he gets certain things right. And he says, you know, those in heaven are those who have said, Father, thy will be done. Those in hell are those to whom the Father has said, Thy will be done. And I think those in hell have chosen apart from God, according to their nature, you know. So.
0: Yeah one very connected to, to this I think when we're speaking of sovereignty there's always these questions is everything that has ever and will ever happen part of a predetermined plan of God that is set in stone if yes why do we pray for change
1: yeah I'll, I'll take that um, yes the, the short answer is yes uh, there's nothing that happens outside of the sovereign decree of God. Um, R.C. Sproul is uh, famously quoted as uh, saying there are no maverick molecules in the universe, that even at a molecular uh, level, the universe uh, operates in accordance with God's hidden will. Now, what was the second?
0: The, why do we pray for change?
1: So the the question of of prayer, so some have wrongly said uh, that prayer is more about us than it is about God, Uh, that prayer changes us. Uh, But the reality, it seems to me, as uh, Scripture lays out uh, a theology of prayer, is that the reason that we pray is that's the means that God has uh, tied to the accomplishing of his will. That he calls his people to pray and he moves his people to pray. And, and as they pray, his will, his hidden will, is brought into existence and to expression.
0: That we see it, right? That we, uh-huh. So so I guess it's not that we ever change God in what he planned to do, right?
3: Well, I think that, uh, the Lord Jesus teaches all his children to pray his will not our will Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes that is the struggle in the life of God's children that we pray our will we hope what we want to get out of it and we have our wish list let's be honest Mm -hmm. but now to pray thy will be done Mm -hmm. and then to take refuge in Christ who prayed it in the garden of Gethsemane not my but thine
2: yeah sure. just a broader point too as I've heard the brothers and just it's been a great time sitting under the word and under the teaching of the brothers you know just hearing again the importance of keeping the means together with the ends you know why should we evangelize well oh, god has appointed that as the means by which he will gather the nations to himself, right? Why should we pray? Because God has commanded that that will be the means by which he affects his will in our lives. So always keeping together those things that God has joined together, not, not separating them, I think is very key for us.
0: Now, putting together what you said, each one of you. So it's not that we pray for change. We may pray for change of a circumstance, but we're, we're wanting God's will to be done, right? So to change this, if it is thy will, that, that it would change, right? So it never changes what he's decided. Good. Okay, what is a biblical response to a person who says, I would like to believe, but I can't. Faith must be given.
3: How do you know that you cannot do it? How do you know that you cannot? That would be my first response. How do you know? I think if the Spirit of the Lord works in you, that you begin to see that you cannot save yourself, that it mm. drives you out to Christ mm. as your only Savior. So the, the, the question that is worded ver- is an excuse. It's an, an excuse. An excuse. But ask the question, Pastor. How do? How have you discovered that you cannot be saved? If it is a work of the Lord, it will comes out and it drives you out to Christ.
1: Uh-huh.
3: Really, mm-hmm. I think so.
2: Well, also too. And just I. I don't mean to follow up every every comment here, but there there. These are great questions, uh, even if slightly distorted, right? But what are you putting your trust in right if you're not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ you're trusting someone else something else Mm. right you're trusting yourself so I think oftentimes we have a certain misguided piety that that it's too pious for the Bible you know I'm lowly oh me I can't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ you know lowly oh me you know how could how, how do I know my sins are forgiven you must go to the cross you must take hold of Christ. You must see Christ there bleeding for you, dying for you, mm-hmm. right? And believe that he is the savior of your sins, For you know, mm-hmm. f- of your life because of your sins, right? And I think that was very instrumental to Martin Luther, right? Um, with his, you know, father confessor uh, who told him, um, yeah, take hold of Christ, you know, of, of many erroneous things perhaps that were, were told Luther, you know, that certainly was true. And I think... You know, what are you trusting in, dear saint, dear loved one of God? You know, what are you trusting in? Are you trusting in something yourself? You know, Satan, the, the lies of the world. You know, because it's a it's a zero sum game. It's no neutrality. Either you're trusting God or you're trusting
1: in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I and I think that at a practical pastoral level. I would just begin to to walk uh, such a person through, uh, first of all, the historical facts surrounding uh, Christ, uh, Christ as the Son of God, and Christ crucified. But then the question is, where does the biblical emphasis fall uh, on Christ crucified? Christ crucified for whom? And I think it's very helpful uh, that the Bible most regularly refers to Christ crucified for sinners. Okay, well, um, are you such a one? Do you, do you fall into this category of sinner, or are you somehow exempted uh, from that category? Because if, if you're a sinner and you uh, accept Christ uh, as the Son of God come in human flesh, crucified for sinners, um, what would prohibit you from coming?
0: Okay, thank you. Now this one. Why did God create men? And did he know he would fall? If so, why did he create us? So basically why did God create man if he knew he would fall? But you you can did he know he would fall? That's part of the question also. So are
2: we supra or infra lipsarian? Is, I'm kidding, I'm kidding.
0: By I don't know if they had that in mind when they
1: asked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is so this is uh, one of those ones that that uh, you know even angels uh, fear to tread here um, but first of all, yes, of course, absolutely God knew in creating man that man would fall. Uh, we assert that on the authority of the whole Bible, uh, God elected a people for himself in Christ before the foundation of the world. that's what Ephesians one says. Well, if he was electing them. What was he electing them unto? So, of course, absolutely God uh, knew uh, that man would fall. I think that the best answer that the Bible gives to the whole question uh, is, on the one hand, a rhetorical question. Who are you, O man? Um, But then secondly, that this is all for God's glory. That God created a world in which sin was possible, in which the fall was certain, in which sinners were elected in Christ Jesus unto eternal salvation, while others were left in their fallen estate for his glory. I I don't know that there's a better answer to that question.
0: (laughs) All right. But then, still this, if so, why did he create us? Well, for his honor and glory, isn't it? Okay. All right. What is the difference between perseverance and preservation of the saints?
3: That belongs together. Perseverance is broader than preservation. Preservation. Uh, preservation uh, is something to preserve. What is there? Uh, it, it, it will be kept. It will be hold. Uh, all those aspects. And that, that belongs to perseverance. And, and as I think became clear in the canons of Dort uh, chapter 5. Perseverance of the saints is, is, an, is God's gift that they are preserved and behold and be kept till the end. So did those words uh, belong together, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Good.
0: All right, one more. What are some ideas you could give us about how a church can be very engaged in evangelism? Maybe Maybe each one of you can give some ideas. What are some ideas you could give us about how a church can be very engaged in evangelism?
3: Well, I do not serve a congregation right now. so, uh, But what I have seen in my travels, those churches, those communities that are very welcome, uh, that welcome, uh, that people, let me say it, not in a degrading word but um, from the outside see that a group of broken people come together around the word of God and are blessed by the word of God and can be a testimony of his grace in this world I think if a church community is understood as a group of um, of saved sinners Mm. who welcome everyone I think that testimony itself is, is a very evangelistic tool to, to, to that people see there is something that I miss and that they are drawn in. Um, yeah, th- for now, I leave it to the experts here. But
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's uh, every good pastor's question, right? How, how do we develop... Congregations which are characterized by an evangelistic culture. And I, I think that the Reformed churches have the best theology for evangelism and of evangelism, but we have one of the worst track records in evangelism, unless we're talking about Dutch evangelism, which traditionally we're pretty good at. It, that, that's inward growth, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> Um, but I think um, first of all I think it begins in in many ways with the church leadership uh, that the pastor and the elders of the congregation ought to be prayerfully uh, seeking growth in this way uh, that we ought to be Leading the way in evangelism, that that the people of the congregation ought to see that as characteristic of our lives. Um, I think secondly and closely related to that, and uh, in line with Dr. Neely's point, that the more that we live uh, real with one another, the more that we begin to perceive there's really essentially no difference between us and anybody outside the walls of the church. That is to say, even those who are living in grossly immoral ways are not fundamentally different than we are, because as we consider the depravity of man, uh, we're all alike uh, under the wrath of God by uh, conception and birth. And that's very helpful to to break down the barriers that exist in our own minds, and it changes the way in which we interact with one another, but it changes the way that we interact with uh, those who would come in from the outside, and it changes the way that we interact with unbelieving family members, uh, neighbors, uh, co-workers, etc. It seems to me that the key to evangelism, certainly in our own time, is through relationship. Uh, We live in a time when cold calling, door to door, that should be done, but that's not the best way to to engage with people. Uh, Because if you're anything like me, you're deeply suspicious of people that come to your door that you don't know. (laughs) And depending on who you assume it may be, you may even hide and pretend that you're not home. Now if if, if you're in New Jersey, you might just open the door and yell at somebody. (laughs) Um, There are parts of the world that's not considered appropriate. Uh, So we need to to be much more intentional in developing relationships through hospitality. Again, this is a way in which the the church leadership leads um, in, in opening their homes, more importantly their hearts, to people of the congregation and people that are outside of the congregation alike and and actually having get-togethers where there's a mixed multitude um, by design. I think that's a a really good way to develop that.
2: Yeah, just adding here a little bit, right? Um, Just do it, you know, just do it. Uh, Nike Theology had a professor who wrote a book by that title, John Leonard, Uh, Just Do It. Uh, Ordinary, Everyday Evangelism. Um, And, you know, I, I think... Um, part of what's going to stir our hearts is a love for God, a love for His truth, a love for one another in the church. Let's begin in the church, right? And I think if there's a frostiness in our hearts towards one another, if there's a, a lovelessness towards our brothers and sisters whom we see every day, you know, we're never going to go out um, and share the gospel of Christ. You know, why would we? So I think we have to learn to love one another, and as we're as we're learning that. You know, from the overflow of that, we're going to be able to love our neighbor um, who is like us and is unlike us. You know, uh, those who are without Christ and without hope in this world. Um, and then, you know, you can branch out from there and think maybe more institutionally. You know, I, I forget who I was talking with just as we were kind of finishing up outside. But I, I, I said to them, I said, look at this, this is life. This is a community of Christians here gathered on a Saturday afternoon to hear about the doctrines of grace. Hmm. Older, younger, children, middle-aged, hmm. everyone relating um, it with such joy and, and gladness and the mutuality, the encouragement that we saw. I mean, brothers, this is... Uh, gl- glory be to God for what God is doing here at Heritage. Hmm. And may God use that as an institutional witness to this area here, Right? Um, come and see, come and taste of the Lord and see that he's good, right? I mean, we were told in mm-hmm. Zechariah 8, one of my favorite passages, that, you know, in the last days, uh, ten men of the nations of the world will come and grab hold of the, the hem of the garment of the Jew, the Jewish man, and say, mm-hmm. take us with you, because we have heard God is with you. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, translating that to our day, when we live different lives, distinct you know, in in many ways very similar, we shop in the same supermarkets, we get stuck in the same traffic jams, we have the same existential angst and frustrations, and we want to see our kids do well, and and all the rest, right, so we're very similar, and yet we're very different, because we have the hope of Christ, we have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a joy that's invincible, we have, uh, (laughs) we're members of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Mm. and that is just weird, in this world, and I mean that in a good way. That's that's like good weird. That's like, what are you on? I want that, you know. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I'm a Christian, and I don't know about all this Bible stuff. But you guys are living differently, and I love that, and I want that. And you know, may God use our churches to that end, to you know, continue to add to the number of those who are being saved. So I, I would say, just do it, and then as you're doing it, you know, you're going to find that you can do things better together, corporately, right? Um, you know, I have a witness as a married man that I wouldn't as a single man, you know? I mean, so there, there are ways to think about witnessing and evangelism that, you know, are broader than just what's called personal evangelism. So, you know, but, you know, I would, I would just add that to the, to the mixer. So.
0: Good. Yeah, and just to follow up, with what you mentioned, the, the in-growth through families growing, it's very biblical, right? A very biblical evangelism. We're being used for the Lord to bring forth little disciples into our own home. Yeah. It's a, it's a blessed means. <laughs> and one more question. Before I ask this one, is there any question that anyone wants to, to venture to ask? Yes, brother? That where do you see worldliness entering the Reformed Church?
2: So many many ways. Yeah, Uh,
3: I I notice in my travel and and preaching in various congregations, in various denominations, that uh, don't underestimate social media. Uh, via our children. Mm. Uh it creates a lot of anxiety in their lives a level of anxiety that s- I think sometimes as parents, or at least my generation mm-hmm. um have never seen. Uh and that through the social media the world comes in house in ways that as parents we have no clue sometimes. And uh, so I think that is just one way, uh, maybe indirectly or directly. Uh, but yeah, worldliness lives in our own heart, eh? I mean. Uh, but maybe the brothers can
2: say a little, bit, a little bit more on this. I hold on to this microphone. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, so uh, one of the things that uh, stands out to me, uh, we just talked a little bit about this distinctive identity of, as Christians, and I've just uh, actually started preaching through First Peter, and I believe that that's actually one of Peter's main themes. Uh, right alongside of the idea of suffering is the idea that the Christian is called to have a distinctive identity, Uh, There is no such thing, uh, it seems in Peter's mind, as a chameleon Christian. And yet I wonder how many of us, uh, not exempting myself, would fall actually into that category. That if we're outside of the walls of the church, or outside of the walls of our home, would people look at us and say that family is different, or that person is different? There's something distinctive about that person, the way that they talk, uh, the way that they dress, the way that they carry themselves. Because it. we are in many ways uh, so inured in the American culture, the American way of life. We've become used to a luxurious way of, of living, um, We've really bought into the, uh, the kind of treat-yourself uh, mentality that the world is talking about continually, uh, where we reserve 10% of our lives maybe for the Lord, and then the other 90% is free for us to use. However, we, we, we treat not just our monies that way, we treat our lives that way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Would people coming into our homes and spending a day in our homes say this family is is different in the way that they conduct themselves. This family is a a family that's saturated with the word of God. Uh, This family is a family that's uh, characterized by the joy of the Lord. Uh, Those kinds of questions, these are ways in which I see worldliness, uh, not just creeping into the church, but in many ways having almost completely overtaken the Reformed church.
2: yeah um I would agree with the brothers. I think you know when I think of like what's what's one of the root things that um I oftentimes think about in terms of application, you know when I'm preparing sermons or you know counseling, um, I often think of the, the 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 ancient the old new heresy of the self, right and I think probably that's embodied. In, in a consumerism, you know, the consumerism of our day, which is to say, you know, um, if Descartes said, you know, I think, therefore I am, consumerism says, I choose, therefore I am. You know, I'm I'm actualized as a person because I, I exercise my choice, of different things for different things, you know, in life, and you know, I think we can oftentimes, um, come to church that way, you know, with a cafeteria. Her mindset, you know, I'm going to take this, I'm going to take that, I'm going to leave that, you know, I'm alert to this. And, you know, we are the worse off because of that, you know. And I think that's, you know, I think Arby Kuyper in his in his book, The Glorious Body of Christ, it's a wonderful book on ecclesiology, but a very practical work as well, says that worldliness is just imbibing the values of the world. And I think that's certainly such a, a broad swath of our churches, of, of Christ's churches, of Christ's church here in America. Um, yeah we struggle with worldliness in that sense you know of just um yeah just the the consumerism of our day you know um uh we can easily you know i, I think of <laughs> a couple of folks you know over the years who've entered our you know the doors at our church and have said you know there's kind of like a sermon audio mindset you know you know and you can almost read their faces. They're they're gonna give me four out of five stars on Google, you know, and it's like really I'm really heartbroken because of that. Not really, but you know it's like you know w- you know we we think we are choosers and deciders and you know it's like we we enter the church with this mindset and we live our lives yelping people. You know I'm gonna give you two and a half stars and you know it's like. Stop. You know, (laughs) you're to submit to the church. You're to submit to the doctrine of Christ here. And um, until that happens, you know, there's not really going to be a lot of growth for a lot of folks. So,
0: thank you, brother. That's that's very good. Anyone wants to add to that? Thank you for that question, brother. Yes, Duane.
2: I heard a lecture, part of a lecture by a man named Sir Roger Scruton. Maybe I'm messing up that last name's uh, pronunciation, but he died recently. He was a British conservative man, philosopher, as, you know, in philosophy of aesthetics and whatnot. But he was asked something similar, and I thought, oh, that's a that's a good answer there that he gave. I, I believe he may have had some uh, inclinations towards Christianity if not, you know, a, a Christian man himself, I don't know. But he said... Ask them what is good music. What you know? What are the standards of good music, and have them think about, you know, what what makes for good music. Uh, you know, you're not gonna you. persuade them of Beethoven or Salter Hymn or Bach, you know, right off the bat. But, um, and you know, I can't I can't speak directly to country music. I don't listen to it, but. Yeah, I think generally there's been an erosion of excellence across the board in the arts. Um, you know, I mean, who today is producing music that can't be produced by a machine that will be worthy of our listening in 10 years, right? All the top 100 Billboard songs are you know, I don't garbage maybe is you know, too much, but they're just not worthy uh it's not excellent music, so I would say you know it's a conversation to have in order to develop good tastes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know how do you develop good tastes in there, in anything, right in craftsmanship, in woodworking, in you know wine or you know craft beer or whatever you know like you have to have standards, you have to develop those things. Um, and it takes time. I would say it takes time, you know, so have a more, there's a more fundamental concern here, which is, you know, the beauty of holiness, um, w- you know, which is not just, you know, what station do I listen to in my 20-minute commute, but, you know, like, what are we attuned to, you know, what, how, how do we order our loves, what, what attracts our hearts, you know, um, so...
1: Yeah, I like that. The the whole idea of aesthetics um, because uh, our art is a reflection of what we worship. Sometimes art is what we worship but art um, at its best is a reflection of what we worship. Um, Now go into a modern art museum and take some uh, ideas away about what our world is worshiping. Um, But one thing that I, I would emphasize if I was talking to my kids about music choice is to understand that there is a peculiar power inherent in music to counsel the heart. Which, by the way, is exactly what God intends. Um, So when we gather together on the Lord's Day or when we walk around the house, we sing. We're actually counseling ourselves. We're speaking to our own soul, like the psalmist does regularly in the Psalms. I'll be still, O my soul, um, etc. But we're also counseling one another when we sing. We're telling one another what is what is true, what is good, what is lovely. And the same is true, regardless of the kind of music that we listen to. And um, I. I We need to help our young people to understand that what they listen to, as far as music goes, is shaping who they are as a person. And it does have a (coughs) far-reaching impact. Anybody among us who has listened to worldly music as younger people, and I'm guessing that covers most of us, uh, even those who are hiding it, we remember the lyrics to those songs forever and ever and ever and ever and you can't get rid of it uh, it comes up at the most inopportune times it affects the way that we think and uh, music is, is profoundly powerful in that way so I would, I would also share with my kids uh, a listening exercise I would say okay you're going to listen to country music uh, or you, you want to listen to CCM uh, so I want you to to tell me what this song teaches about God, because country music teaches about God, by the way. Teaches a lot about God, the God that's being worshipped by the musician. Um, I, I I was appalled to hear a country song that's uh, quite popular was quite popular, talking in the song it's clear that that the the young man and young woman are living together in fornication and then talking about going to church together. I was blown away by the callous indifference of this singer to the lyric to set talk about how they're they're getting up together, they're not married and then they're going to church together. like that's how blatantly desensitized and desensitizing the music is. So what does it teach about God? And then what does it teach about me? And then compare that to what the scriptures teach about God and what the scriptures teach about me Mm. and and see how the two comport with each other. And I think that for any serious-minded young person, that will develop a maturity and and an ability to discern between what is good, what is pure, what is lovely, what is praiseworthy, and that which is a cheap counterfeit at best.
0: Thank you. Anything to add? Okay, thank you for the question. A couple more here, and maybe we'll be able to finish these. Um, even though we are elected by God through Jesus Christ, how are we atoned by Him? Very simple.
2: Is there, a, is there an opposition or
0: no? It's I I think it's agreeing, just wanting to understand the biblical facts. I guess we are elected by God through Christ. How are we atoned by Him? Maybe understanding atonement. What is that really?
2: Yeah. So you know, John is very good. John's gospel account is very good uh, uh, regarding. Um, telling us, you know, some liberal theologians in the 20th century talked about how we kind of overhear whispers of the Trinity, right? And that, that's not true. We we get the Trinity loud and clear if we're listening. And one of the places to listen to it um, and listen for it is in God's, in John's Gospel account where we're told that, you know, we're, we're given language of those whom the Father has given me, Right? Uh, those whom the Father has elect, the Father, right, the Father's will, the Father's word, the Father's authority, right? So, there's a deference the Son has to the Father. He's not here to do His will. He's here, he's here to do the Father's will, which is to save all those that the Father has given Him, right, and not to lose any one of them. And no one can snatch Him out of My hand. No one can snatch Him out of the Father's hand. So, I think, yeah, properly speaking, it's the Father who chooses us, Gives, gives that same group of persons, definite number of persons, as the canons say, to the Son, and those for whom the Son dies, then are given to the Spirit, when the Spirit is poured down on the day of Pentecost in a new, uh, redemptively new way, they are given to the Spirit so that now the Spirit applies to them, and only them, the saving work of Christ that the Father in eternity past had planned. So... Um, I would say, you know, that's that's how Jesus atones for us because it's the Father that's given him the elect. Mm-hmm. So, yeah.
0: okay. And the last question, and we'll try to be simple. Considering the verses that seem in the favor of those that oppose the perseverance of the saints, how should we answer those scriptures? So I guess the idea is those verses that sound like Jesus would have died for everyone how how do we answer those passages
3: yeah. uh, brief and simple that is an exegetical issue uh, the way I explained it that Arminius and the followers of Arminius made it conditional clauses and the Greek experts on the Synod of Dort they explained it not as conditional clauses and not to, write, uh, not to read it as if but since since we are holding fast, and that is rooted then in the work of Christ um, and in the in the work of God himself. so there's an exegetical issue that they just pick and choose. They were very selective that was known at the synod they were very selective in the choosing text, but the particular all those sentences that begin with if they made it conditional clauses. Well, exegetically you can explain it in different ways, a non-conditional clause. Since we are or since we hold, and that is rooted in the work of Christ. John Calvin, brevity, brief, be very brief. It is is eight thirty.
0: Yes, it is close. Think of
1: Hesitant to speak after that. Speak <laughs> um, <laughs> briefly. Yeah, I think, again, this drives at the, um, the idea that God gives the means as well, right? And, and so there are certainly Scripture passages which address the regenerate will, spurring uh, the believer on to love and good works, uh, spurring the believer on to, uh, to persevere in faith, and these are given to motivate and, and to, um, as, as tools or instruments by God, to, to encourage us to continue.
2: Yeah, again, very briefly, you know, um, we, we've, we've, given, um, we've given emphasis to election and regeneration because those Arminians gave emphasis to regeneration and, our, and election, and, and we have to respond to them. But I think, you know, understanding the, the doctrine of the covenant, you know, that we have been saved and now put, as Hebrews 3 and 4 says, say, we've been put in the wilderness with Christ, right, to enter into that Sabbath rest. So, there, we want to be sure that we're speaking of the conditionality of the covenant in a right way, in a reformed way, but we are called to persevere. We're called to strive. We're called to fight with all the energy that God has given us, all the strength that he has given us, and those who persevere till the end will be saved. So, um, from God's perspective, there's not a conditionality. From God's perspective, it's a done deal, right? Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he called, he sanctifies, he justifies, he glorifies. The same group of people, right? So it's a done deal. But from our human perspective, there are vicissitudes and there are struggles. And we are called to persevere and to press on, of course, in the name and by the strength of Christ. So.
0: Good. Thank you so much, brothers. We do come to 8.30, so we'll be, we'll be closing now. Thank you so very much for, for preaching, being here with us, and coming from Grand Rapids, Dr. Neely, and also answering these questions. And if, if anyone has any specific ones, you can always ask one-on-one.